0: All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona, with me, as always, bad-ass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today we have a special guest on. His name is Dr. Richard Ulm. He's a chiropractor out of Columbus, Ohio, and he also owns a continuing education company called Athlete Enhancement. Rich is one of the guys that I've looked up to um, going through my career in its beginnings. And he was one of the first people through his course, DNS strength training, to make everything make sense for me, where I knew there was the performance side. I knew there was the healthcare side. I loved DNS movements and understanding trunk stabilization and joint centration, what have you, but I didn't know how to put them together. I didn't know how to pair them in a way that was beneficial, not just for regular gen pop rehab, but for elite athletes and and how to bring the DNS structure into my performance training, not just my rehab table. And so this is going to be an interesting talk for you guys. Um, Rich, Rich is one of those guys that he, he's one of the best talkers I've been around and he can explain concepts in depth in a way that's going to make you understand. So tune in, listen up and take a notebook because this one's going to be very, very deep with information.
1: It was, you're basically mechanically, you're just lifting and pulling down. So it's like a ton of shoulder, but not any sort of scap. Mm -hmm. And then when we got those bands, what are they called? Uh, Inertia inertia waves. waves. Yeah. The inertia wave bands. Then I'm sitting there like, Oh, wait a minute. Now I can like actually do the shoulder thing with my scaps engaged. I was like, man, this is and like what you can do with it is pretty cool. And then shit as a fighter where you have to have tremendous pulling strength and even pulling endurance, which is maybe we'll dig into this in the podcast, like the difference between strength, power, speed, and endurance in weird things like scapular stability, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone just usually says, Oh, scap stability. Okay, cool. Well, expressing scap stability in a bench press is completely different than doing it in, you know, five rounds of five minutes of, of, of fighting. Right, or if you're you're pinned down, like I don't know if you guys watched um Gordon Ryan uh at the World Championships a couple weeks ago, and this fucking dude, I mean he get a rear he gets a rear naked choke on him, which is I swear to you, he's just doing that to show dominance. But he <laughs> that guy was like fighting off a rear naked choke for like 12 minutes or something. Yeah. So if you think about it, now granted his he had his his downside arm, his left arm was pinned between the ground and Gordon's leg, but he had to like express or be, be basically be able to maintain endurance for twelve minutes. Like I can't even imagine how hard you're working to not, you know, against the best fighter, well the best, excuse me, best no-gi uh mix, 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 yeah, or, um, best, best grappler
0: in history.
2: Yeah, right. No, that's interesting. And that leads like right into a question I wanted to ask you, Rich, as far as like complexity versus simplicity of systems, right? Because we're talking about you have your strength, power, endurance, capacity, all of these qualities in you as an athlete period, but you also have them locally to like we're saying like scapular stability and even around the body. So when you're programming, when you're looking at that, how do you avoid unnecessary complexity in programming a lot of that stuff? Because I dive into rabbit holes. I know personally too much.
1: Dude, this guy's got his shit together. So, um, <laughs> you basically just identified the crux, the, my, my, problem, the cross that I bear is I love going into the weeds but at the same time, as an athlete or, or a coach conveying a system to an athlete, it doesn't fucking matter. So you need to know the weeds, but you need to be able to explain your system in a way that's just simple and repeatable and easy. Um, so Carl Hardwick and I did a podcast with him last week that I'll post next week, actually. And we talked about that, like, you know, he like you can go into the weeds and get all wonderful. And I can go crazy with neurology and biomechanics and stuff like that. At the end of the day, it's just giving you support for why you're doing what you're doing. But what you're actually doing with the athlete needs to be simple and complex and built on as few principles as possible. You don't want to have like 20,000 things you're doing. It just needs to be simple. And so to answer your question, I think it's great that you go down the rabbit holes so that you can kind of understand what's going on and why and all that kind of stuff but for me I would think you know back to the scapular endurance thing right so when you're going to go in and program for somebody you have to close the gap and the gap is between whatever the the demands of the sport are and whatever the athlete brings to the table so if you're if you're going to sit down <clears throat> and you know I mean I, I mean hell let's let's just think about mixed martial arts cuz I'm sure there's a, a lot of fighters who listen to this So there's a specific set, almost unique to combat sports that you have to be able to do. Okay. You need to be able to repeatedly express power over whatever your time domain is, which might be five minutes, you know, three minute rounds, one minute off, five minute rounds, whatever it is, whatever it is. Yep. And so you have to think about that. Okay. Well, I need to be able to do that, but I also need to be able to, you know, have continuous core engagement. I need to be able to, I mean, handle pain. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things you can do. That can be either f- from the functional part, like, okay, you need dorsiflexion or you need good scapular stability. And then you can get into the performance realm, which is more like metabolic output, you know, speed, power, those kind of things. And then you can even get into, in, the, in any sport, particularly combat sports, the psychological realm. It's one-on-one. There's nobody you can tag out. So if you get clocked in the face, you have to know how to control yourself. And so that's kind of the demand to the sport. Then when you come in, you think, okay, cool. This athlete does really well in these competencies and these functional things and these performance things, these psychological things, and they don't do well in this. So then now we have to close that gap. And closing the gap is like for the coach to be able to precisely figure out what they're doing, they need to be able to get into the weeds. But at the end of the day, you just need to think, okay, this athlete is lacking, in scapular and stability endurance. Okay. So then I just need to be programming things that are longer time domains. Cause when we're, we're training, all we're doing is putting the athlete in an environment, the adaptation to which is what we want to happen. I want bigger muscles. Okay. You're going to do six to 12 reps in you know, average time under attention is between 30 and 50 seconds, or I want them to be really explosive. Okay. You're going to do plyometrics, right? The adaptation to those environments that you put them in in training is what you want. That's the desired response. And so you just think about like, okay, here's, here's what the sport demands. Here's what the athlete brings to the table. These are the major areas that they need work on. So I can get into the weeds and think about it. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to spend most of the time working on those things. And I don't have to go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to change this here and make this all super specific. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a bigger fan of keeping it simple, bigger movements and consistency. Yeah. Amen. A, a lot of times people go into the weeds because um, everybody wants a shortcut, right? So I'm training for this thing called Sinister, which is like a famous uh, kettlebell workout where it's 10 single arm swings every 30 seconds for five minutes, one minute rest, and then 10 Turkish getups in 10 minutes. Okay. Now, it's with 106, right? So, if you're doing that with a 53, who cares? If you're doing that with a 106-pound kettlebell, there's all kinds of things. So, I thought about this when I came in. Okay, well, what are the things that I'm limiting? Left grip strength, right? Right shoulder stability. Well, actually, shoulder strength, which we can talk about the difference between stability and strength later if you want. Um Uh, metabolic hinge. That was weak. In the beginning, aerobically, I was down. So then I just said, okay, I need to be spending more time building my aerobic capacity. Okay. With my back injuries, I can't do five days a week of swinging like strong first proposes. So I needed to use, you know, you know, hashtag OPEC stuff. I did a lot of what they call map training, which is just aerobic stuff. I'm on the bike. I'm on the rower. I'm on the skier. I'm on the C2 bike working on my aerobic capacity. Okay. So I can get into the weeds with like all the specific stuff, but at the end of the day, I just have to get the work in, right? So I just have to get the work in. So it doesn't matter how complex or nuanced it is. At the end of the day, consistency will always win, always win. Like the greatest program in the world that you're doing for three weeks perfectly. And then you fall off the wagon is going to get its ass kicked by the guy that just does push, pull hinge, squat, carry, and does that three to five days a week for months and years. That's, that's, that's how you, that's how you do it. So, to to sort of tie a bow on this the coach needs to know the weeds the coach needs to be like you and like austin that loves to dig into the weeds because then you can make better decisions about what they're doing but then what they're doing is just dude get the work done make it simple and then just get the work done it doesn't have to be crazy nuance it's fun to do that but to the athlete they just have to get the work in that's what i actually love about fighters Who's the guy that was just and I was just like, damn, he looks way more powerful on the skier. Uh, Henry Henry Corrales. Yeah. So this dude, I, I've, it's funny. Every time I go in there, I, I kind of train with him. And he's just a cool dude, and he can he can fucking push. So it's it's awesome sitting there watching him. And I'm just I'm looking at kind of what Austin's doing with him, and he's got him doing repeat efforts, 15 seconds on, was it 45 off? Yeah, yeah, 15 45s. Fucking terrible set but um for him not for, I mean for, for you know in terms of like performance it's fantastic but in terms of just doing it yourself it's, gar- it's horrible and he could just push so he's just there getting the work in every time I go down to Scottsdale he's just there he's on the bike he's doing circuit stuff he's doing you know the um inertia wheel or whatever that thing's called what's it called inertia no no, no. The, the wheel oh the flywheel the flywheel, yeah, which also terrible. And it's just getting the work in. So I think it's cool to to get really, really into the weeds. But at the end of the day, I think the program needs to be simple. And you need to, the coach should be able to explain everything that's in there, either to the athlete or to a six-year-old, why you're doing what you're doing. And it doesn't have to, if, if you're getting into, oh, well, this metabolic process, is like, no, 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 way too, way too detailed. Just, it should be very, very simple because at the end of the day, consistency will always be perfection like a short-term inconsistent perfect workout
0: right well and it's cool to see too because exactly what you're saying about henry that's what makes him so special is he just shows up and does the fucking work like all the guys and he yeah, exactly and he fucking works but all the guys i have that do very well they they are very they're as successful as they can be they just put their nose down shut the fuck up and do their work every single day and they miss maybe three days an entire year, just because they're on a schedule. When you get on a schedule, you're going to be more consistent. As soon as you get more consistent, you're going to be better at what you do.
1: Yeah. You've done a good job. I mean, the whole, when I got to train there this past or two Saturdays ago, just seeing your group, like you've done a good job of cultivating a group that just works and they're all just kind of in there working on different stuff that we can maybe get in with the nasal breathing and all kinds of cool things that you've been implementing, but they just work and it's cool. Now, one thing that, I want to bring up because I struggled with this as an athlete, and that is um, consistency is going to win, okay? But you can't be an idealist. So I was an idealist when I was an athlete. So the story I told myself, I still to this day think it's pretty accurate, is I was just barely talented enough to compete at the national level, right? So if you take away an amazing team that I trained with, or, you know, like one of the best coaches of all time, Judd Logan, who we lost this year, unfortunately, a uh, four-time Olympian, broke the American record like over 20 times, I can't remember what it was. I always sort of inflate it, but I know it's at least 20. <laughs> um, you take either of those two factors away and then me with you know my little Honda Accord engine doesn't make it to the national level, period, okay? So what I always told myself is that I have to be working harder and smarter than everyone else. Otherwise, I'm never going to get to that level. Now, I think that that's true but one of the battles that I had, just to go in you know, to, to tackle the question here, was that i'm I wanted to get every single thing done the exact way it was supposed to be done, okay And it doesn't always work like that, right so to to give you a little dive into like how crazy I was, I got done with practice late. I had night 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 class. Judge like, okay, just cut out the last set of push press. And skip the Scott curls, go to class. Cool. This is my coach, so fine. I go to class. It's three hour class. I get done, and I'm sitting, like studying in the library, and it's like ten thirty, and I couldn't fucking focus. And I was like, I gotta do it. I walked over to the gym. I, I warmed up, did one set of push press, three sets of Scott curls, went back to the library. Like I couldn't do it. Oh yeah. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. So where I struggled was I wanted every workout to be absolutely perfect, right? And I think what we you need to realize is, again, back to the simplicity of things. It's like, no, no, no. You're just working on scapular stability or hinging endurance or aerobic capacity. So I get to the gym and the one assault bike that we've got at Lifetime Fitness, my buddy Ryan's on it. All right, fuck it. I'll just row. Who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love that story that you shared because I think so many athletes
2: put themselves in that court category. Like I can't tell you how many athletes I've had myself included that your middle school coach tells you, well, you have to work harder than everybody else to be ahead. Cause you don't have the talent or whatever, which is an awful thing for a coach to say, but no one I, ever told me that, by the way, I just told myself that <laughs> I was told that. So maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but, um, but no, I think that's beautiful. And then the, the one word that keeps like sounding in my head like a, a, an alarm as you keep telling your stories and we're talking about trusting the coach to make the informed decision is trust, right? Because I yeah. think there's a lot of that that goes around and has to in a coach-athlete relationship. That's like what Austin has when he builds his group. Guys can come in and just do the work because they know it's going to be quality work meant for them exclusively. So if you could just talk a minute on, on building that trust and how we can formulate a, a community and a group that in that setting.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a good line. Um, the line that my coach Judd said to me one time, actually, if you want me to get a little bit into, into the story, we're yeah. sitting there at practice or so we're at, we're at a comp. So as you would know, like rule number one, you don't change shit the day of a comp. Like you just don't do that. Right. <laughs> yep. So we're sitting there and this kid uh, comes up and he's like, normally with the, with the throw you would do, you would white, he was winding it twice and then throwing, right? That's part of the throw for, I was a hammer thrower. So you wind it twice and then you do three spins and you throw it. And there's a thing called a sling start, which we all practice. But like, if you're not doing it in your competition throws or, you know, at your high, intense, high intensity throws in training, it's like not something you would ever fucking do in a meet. And he comes up and, and uh, he's, and he already warmed up, took, took one of his throws and like, you know, wasn't doing that great. And I'm standing there and he comes up, and he goes, hey, Judd. What do you think about if I just, you know, sling it in there, just get after it? And Judge's like, absolutely, go for it. And he walks around, like, what the fuck is that? And he looks at me, and without even, he wasn't trying to, like, be prolific. He just goes, it's better to believe in a bad program than not believe in a good one. Yeah. And he goes, that kid walked up, and he goes, and I could see it in his face that he believed that that was the best thing for him to do in that moment. Now maybe that's Judd's ability to be able to read into those people, that into Eric in that moment, because he knew and he had that relationship with Eric. But for him to say to shut that down in that moment, I actually believe, after continuing to be trained by Judd and then coaching myself for years, that it wouldn't have been good for Eric if he said no, 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 no stick to the plan. Eric would walk into the ring, or in my case, well, I could, actually in both of our cases, or the, the <laughs> hexagon, um, they're going to walk in there and they're going to have doubt right okay. so there's lots of things that we can talk about with the trust thing there's there's trust from the the coach to the athlete there's trust from the, the performance coach to the athlete which is oftentimes different 100%. um it's not they they blur the lines in MMA quite a bit but like if you have like if you guys are working with golfers well they have a swing coach there's a swing coach that's a thing right or if you're working with like a track athlete they have a coach so you are the conditioning coach, you are the strength conditioning coach, or you are the, the physician, right? Austin, you obviously blur those lines, which makes it better. Um, but then there's also, you have to know uh, who's the chief of, 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 the, of the tribe, right? And actually, I'm going to post uh, in a couple of weeks, I had this fantastic co- uh, talk with Greg Rose. And the, almost the whole thing is just him spewing brilliance about where does the physician fit into the medical team? And I don't know anyone that I would ask that would know more about that. And he was, he, he's one where I got that line. Like you have to know who's in charge because if you walk in there and you're like, Oh, Hey dude, you shouldn't be doing that. Like the coach has them doing one thing and the doctor's like, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. You've just fucked the athlete. You've just injected this little bit of doubt right in between their ears and now in their training, they're not going to be able to push as hard as they need to because they're going to wonder in the back of their head whether they know it or not. In the back of their head, they're being going like, man, should I really be doing this? Is this hurting my hip? Is this making my shoulder worse? Or should I be doing something else? And that's not good. So the to stick with the first part of the trust, the, the person, whether it's the, the performance coach, whether it's the technique coach, You know, I'm sure MMA, there's multiple technique coaches. You've got your BJJ guy, you've got your Muay Thai, you've got, you know, wrestling or whatever. Um, Everybody needs to get together and figure out, okay, who is ultimately in charge? And the way I think about it clinically is I always want my message to go through that person. So, you know, I worked with Joe Kovacs for a long time, who's definitively the second best shot putter ever in history. So, I mean, there's nobody close. And he's basically competing against the Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Bruce Lee, Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, a guy named Ryan Krauser. The GOAT. And Joe's very close to him, right? And so I coached, I coached elite world class guys for several years. Like I'm very familiar with what he does. I have no, I would if he said hey, and if I had the time, if he said hey, can you coach me? I would say yes. He's a great guy. And I'm I'm more than comfortable doing that. However, I'm not his coach. And so even though when, I'm tr- when I was treating him, I might have ideas, I had to go through his coach. Like, so I wrote programs for him, for not, not like his programming, but I would write things for him like supplementary stuff. Uh, well, I wanted to make sure that Ashley, his coach, was actually approving what I was doing. Because if Ashley was saying one thing and then I was saying another one, it's not, it's not working to the end of making Joe as good as possible. Now, where a lot of younger coaches get in there, they want to slide in and be like the guy that says the thing that makes them great. And then that somehow, you know, puts a little notch on their belt. But I think everyone needs to sort of check their ego and know where they fit, you know, in the team. And then if you can get everybody working together, yeah, sure, you're not going to get the same individual credit. But remember, that's not your job if you're actually here to help the person, you are here to do anything you can with or without recognition to make that athlete as good as possible. Right. And so that's, that's one aspect of the trust thing. You have to know where you fit on the team. I think what you were asking was specifically about the coach's relationship to the athlete, right? Is that what what you meant? Yep. Yeah. So that one's tough. Like actually, are you, are you a coach and a physician or or are you a No, nope, just strength and conditioning coach. Don't say just. You are a strength and conditioning coach. So you are a strength and conditioning coach. So you might have – well, I, I, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll use Austin as an example because I kind of know what his training methodology is. So he has a different training methodology than a lot of other people. So if someone comes in and let's say that they're a top-level athlete, it's a little bit more noticeable when you think of it as a top-level athlete. So, you know, Khabib wants to come back and he want, and he happens to live in Denver – And he wants to train with you, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Beautiful. Yeah, that's please. So he's used to training a specific way. He's gotten to a super elite level, right? Um, Training that way. And then he comes in and then you have some ideas. So if you instantly go after him and be like, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. Or, you know... I, I guess we'll have to talk maybe about new kids because you can do that with someone younger. You can't do that with a, with a super elite. Um, you can't just be like, no, 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 this is the way we do it. This is how I am. Blah, 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 blah. You have to kind of work with the athlete there. And so my point with this is in the beginning, you want to make sure that you are working with the athletes and trying to figure out where they're coming from and kind of be um, just, know, not, that, not I'm, that is a very, very simple word, but like, Compromising. There you go. There's a huge word in my vocabulary. Compromising. You're like, okay, well, he likes this. Okay, I I don't think we need to do that quite as much, but I'm going to do that a little bit. And in the beginning, you have to just show competence and that you're going to work with them and then they'll kind of get to know you. And then you just start like peppering in other things. And then, then as they gain the trust in there, you can slowly turn the battleship until he's doing exactly what you think he's doing, right? Or what you think he should be doing. With professional athletes, if you come in, you know when I work, you know on professional athletes, you know whether I'm at an event or they come into the office or whatever. A lot of the first couple of times, I'm just doing what I'm told. Like, literally, that sounds horrible, you know. But I'm just doing what I'm told. Like, if you work on a pro golfer at at a tournament, they know, like, hey, I need you to hit ART on my left adductor. Um, Can you do a right rotation adjustment and just loosen my hips up? Yep, sure. Now, if I went in there, no, 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 you don't need that. Like, you know, like tightness is only, you know, a sign of dysfunction. So let's go after some like reflex locomotion, some DNS shit. They're going to walk. They're yeah, going to walk. Absolutely. So you have to establish that trust. And in the beginning, that trust, you kind of have to compromise a little bit and do sort of what they're expecting. And then you can slowly interject your methodology. And then they start to trust you and then they see, ooh, you understand the weeds. You have a bigger picture of what you're doing. And then they'll kind of trust you more to do that. That might take two years. Yeah. And it speaks to what you were saying earlier. Um,
2: I forget the exact quoting that you used, but I learned it as psychology beats physiology, right? Sure. So, and I learned it in a college football weight room where we're coming in and, you know, bands are chains, right? We're doing accommodating resistance, whatever group uh, of bands players. are
1: by far my favorite, but go ahead. Right. But <laughs> they, both come in- they both work, but bands are like my favorite thing ever.
2: <laughs> but you come into a college football weight room and what are the guys going to get hyped about doing and be way more in for is the chains. Right. So they're cool looking. Yeah, they're cooler and looking you know. out loud. And yeah. And so you might get a lot more effort. You might get a lot more return out of that in a college football setting versus the bands, which may, like you said, be a better stimulus textbook wise.
1: Yeah, that's kind of a, the the psychology always beats physiology. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Um, another good way to think about it. Uh, what was I, I was debating with some of the other day, and we were talking about over coddling, you know, our youth athletes. Right. Yeah. So well, I don't, I do not want to get into that whole thing, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's the, it's, it's transcending the mentality from the seventies. Like the think of the Bobby Knights, you know, just screaming at people and like having them do practice and like, you can't have any fucking water, you know, for two days in football. And it's just like, the fuck are you like, what, like, what are you doing? So there's, that's too extreme in one direction. Yep. But then there's the other direction where like, okay, um, you can't over them either. So it's like finding the balance here. Right. And so somebody was saying like, oh, you shouldn't why would you have a rule that you can't have your hands on your knees? Okay. Well, that's like, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that, but I would, I would practice and they'd be like, dude, don't it's like, I call it, I call it George Foreman rest. You guys know George Foreman never sat down. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I'm oftentimes doing George Foreman rest between my, my workouts. Like I can't sit down and, um, you know, and and one of the rating systems I have for metabolic conditioning is a one is you don't, you just move in. You don't feel any need to rest a 2 is you want to you want to put your hands on your knees but you, but you can get a, you can resist it a 3 is you have to put your hands on your knees a 4 is you have to put a third point of contact on the ground be it a knee or a hand and a 5 is you're just laying on the ground right that's the the rating system for me right so if you're wondering austin as i go up in weight with my bells i have to be able to do the workout and have it be a 2 before I'm metabolically and physiologically ready to move up to the next more challenging thing. That's how I think about it. Right. So that's an easy way to go. But anyways, so the question is like, well, you recover faster if you put your hands on your knees. Right. And then Okay, that's true. So physiologically, you should tell them to put their hands on their knees, they're still mostly vertical, so you're not gonna completely mess up, you know, blood flow and all that kind of stuff. And they recover faster, because you don't have to stabilize as hard So them the you can just focus on respiration. Cool. But there's a humongous benefit to teaching the athlete to push, right? There's a there's a pain part of it, there's a psychological part of it, that, that cannot be the importance of which can't be understated. So I think like, like knowing like okay the athlete feel like perfect example with me with with throwers bench press it's fucking retarded it's just bad for your shoulders you know I would much rather teach an athlete to do you know jerks and push heavy push presses off of blocks and all that kind of stuff I've got all the again in the weeds arguments for why it's vastly superior to the bench press and yet if I'm working with a, a world class shot putter we're fucking benching like that's like I don't even compromise i'm not even gonna like try to get it in their head like hey dude i mean do you really want your scaps locked into position and then you're you're keeping your your wrist in a closed chain position you can't roach i mean that's like weeds and they're like dude i need to bench like so-and-so benches 600 pounds i need to bench more than 600 pounds that's the story they tell themselves so bench just put it in the program and that's what's kind of like fun about what you you know you guys do is it's there's a humongous um art behind the science it's easy to like, I mean, I could hand over like, you know, my, the, the best programs I've ever written in my entire life. But if you give them to a coach, that's just going to do them as is, they're not going to be nearly as effective. Like I watch Austin all the time going like, Oh no, 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 do this, switch over to this or go to this. And he's like in the, in like on the fly changing things. Cause every time an athlete walks in the gym, they're different. And so knowing, okay, do I have to placate towards the psychology today or towards the physiology, which one's more important? And that's the art of it. There's no straight line that you can draw that says, okay, here's when you would do this. There's
0: when you would do that. Well, and that, that kind of plays too. It's so important to build actual relationships with your athletes because like that, that's kind of why it works for me is be, because I, I hang out with my athletes. I'm with them all the time. Like I get to know them on a personal level. So I know like, like when you came through last weekend, Rich, uh, Vanessa, she was, so she fought yesterday. She won yesterday. Oh, she
1: did. Yeah. You could tell, I, I was, she was, she was interesting. Like, um, she has the, uh, just all the way down to her bones. You can tell that she, she, she just knows how to, she just had, I don't know. I was just looking at her. I was like, oh, that's, that's a in. fighter.
0: Exactly. But like, so she's normally this happy, lucky, like that she's the bubbly person in the room. She's the one that everybody's around. Oh, was she more them. intense just because the fight was coming up? Exactly. So, so, now mind
1: you for, be- for people that like, weren't there, obviously. Um, It was a quiet intensity. She wasn't like walking around like huffing and puffing. She was just kind of like, I don't know. It was awesome. She was just mentally preparing for the fight. But
0: like, so so our work was supposed to be nasal breathing through this. I was going to walk her through different workouts. And then when she walked in, I was just like, hey. Something seems a little bit more intense right now. It seems like you're in a zone and you just want to get work in. I just, we were doing nasal breathing, which we can talk about next because I know you want to. I would like to oh, talk yeah. to you about nasal I, breathing.
1: I, I wish I had more science to back it up, but I am fully committed to this. This is valuable stuff. Okay. But go yeah. ahead, finish the statement. So, yeah. but, nasal so, breathing, double so, unders.
0: Yeah. So she threw her the tape on her mouth to promote some nasal breathing and she just went into it, didn't say one word to her for 20 or for 35 minutes. She just Least. did an entire mobility set, an entire mobility work, and then right onto the bike. And she just did all of her work. I think I talked to her two times. Normally, we would just be chatting the entire time, to- or b- bouncing in and out. As soon as she's done with her mobility warm up, she hops on the bike. That's not nasal breathing, but because she's just more intense and she seems like just different than normal, boom, just jump into the intense work, do your thing. I ain't going to talk to you. I'm not going to bug you today. Hell yeah! Which that's, to- just,
1: that's 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 you knowing. The yeah. athlete, right? Exactly. So that goes to back see. to knowing the athlete. And so I guess that that's another benefit of, um, developing a relationship with them. They can come in and you can see, like there might be times when you start pushing somebody and they get three sets, you know, into a 20 set thing. You're like, get the fuck out of here. Yep. Go home.
0: yep. And like, you know, in, in your head, you're like, no, 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 no. I got to get this to work No, 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 Go away. You're fine. Yeah. Funny enough. I did that with Henry yesterday. Henry yeah. just showed up. He did. You have, you heard of fossil Creek in Arizona? at all it's a hike hmm. there's there's like so it's a huge hike in arizona 22 mile hike but you jump in <laughs> yeah so he did fossil creek a day and a half ago walks in he's like i feel good and he starts moving and i'm like dude you, no, you don't. what the fuck <laughs> you look like <laughs> shit <Yeah. laughs> <There you go. laughs> so then i told him like hey dude like we're let's just cut it let's just do treatment today it's not a big deal you're the only one here and he's like no no i gotta push and i'm like henry you just almost hiked a fucking marathon bro let's yeah recover. yeah,
1: yeah we, we have to talk about um well, <laughs> I would like to talk about that. I think that's the better way to say it. I would like to talk about um, establishing readiness for training. Not now. Sure. We can do the nasal breathing now, but that's like one thing that I've, I've kind of gotten interested in because we just said the art and science, like you read that, that that girl, I can't remember her name, the fighter.
0: Vanessa. Yeah,
1: Vanessa. She needed to just come in, do the intense stuff, and then go home. So there's no other fluff on top of that. You had Henry come in and you're just like, no, 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 you're not ready, get out of here. So there's a there's a bunch of ways, I did a, a podcast on the subjective and objective ways that you can kind of measure those. None of them are perfect. It has to be this sort of like collection, of, a battery of tests that I'd love to chat about because that is how you dial in the dose, right? The prescription is what are you doing? Okay, Vanessa, you're doing nasal breathing and double unders. The dose is you're going to do five rounds of three minutes and one minute rest, or you're going to do 10. No one's doing 10 minutes of double unders, but well, actually, unless you're in a jump rope core, but you know what I mean? Like, okay, you're doing squats and this and this and this, that's the dose. The dose is as important as the prescription, right? And so I think that now that I've, I've been able to just been in the, in the sport or in the space longer I'm much more aware of objective and subjective ways to establish readiness. And so I feel like if I could go back and do it again or like get into just strength training, I would be so much better about dosing micro dosing, you know, if you will Mm -hmm. uh, micro dosing or micro modulation of the dose real time in the middle of their workout. Cause I did, kind of what and I'm not saying you're doing this you're we can talk about what you're taking measurements on later on but you know I'm watching you and you're just saying okay switch over and do this or go or go to this or oh, no no I'll cut it off you're done and you're doing exactly what any good coach would do which is like you're reading that athlete and and I'm I'm perhaps projecting here but you might be just sort of like basing a lot of that on the relationship that you've built with that athlete so you know like in their eyes in their posture if they're pushing too hard or if they're not pushing hard enough. And then there's maybe some other things that we can get into. I'll just throw that out there. If you guys want to talk let's, about that, let's, but. Jump, let's oh. jump in. I, this yeah, is I one of my go, favorite yeah. things
0: to talk about um, because oh, yeah, this sure. is I, I use this a lot. So I have different athletes use different things. Um, all, all UFC athletes have access to an aura ring. They get it for free. So I get access to like Vanessa for Vanessa for this same example. I knew her aura ring score, her sleep score before she walked in. I checked that every morning. And then she also uses something called first beat, which is a new wearable. Um I think they're out of Switzerland, but I really like first beat sports.
1: So what so, so help me on here. So the is first beat something you just put on? So she with, does a
0: morning yeah, so it's a heart strap. It's strategy. like Morpheus, where you so, just put
1: it on and you just get your you take it and you take your your HRV. You get your body temp if it'll pick it up.
0: Yep. So it's essentially it'll be, yeah, it'll be uh body temp, it'll be HRV, and and then it's also your wearable, so it's your workout tracker as well. So it's just like a polar strap mixed with an omega wave, if you will. Sure. Is kind of what they're trying to sell. Um, but so with that, I know her acute workload, her chronic workload, and essentially every metric I could ask for all in one thing. So when she walked in on Saturday, I knew she was not as recovered as she should be. And then on top of that, I also saw the intensity in her eyes where she's like, I just want to get the fucking work in. So those two things combined, I'm like, hey, let's chill. With Henry, for example, <laughs> that's that was more of a relationship type thing because he showed up and he has, so he uses a polar uh, watch for his wearable, for his metric tracking. I
1: just, I, just, I just got a new Garmin. I just switched to
0: that. I mean, I, I've got yeah. the Morpheus. I've got. See, I want to try Morpheus. I've heard really good things about it. Yeah. We can um, we'll finish your statement. Then I can talk yeah, about yeah. Morpheus. Yeah. Um, but so Henry walked in, he showed up at, he actually had a 92% recovery rate. He was in the green. He had great sleep, but just something wasn't right. It didn't <laughs> seem like he, it, like it just didn't seem like the same movement quality that he normally has. So that's, that's where I think the relationship in my mind, at least kind of has to Trump everything where even if it says he's green, if the movement quality isn't there, if the intensity isn't there, if something's off, that's when I need to make an adjustment as a coach and as somebody that also not just trains the athlete, but cares about the athlete, Or I might be putting him at too big of a deficit if I keep pushing him harder. And I don't know if he's going to recover in a quick enough time.
1: Yeah. So two, two things about that. One, in the beginning, when you're less experienced, you have to depend on the objective measurables because yep. you yeah. just don't, you don't know, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and then as you get better and more experienced like you have, as you develop a better relationship you know, with the athlete where you can read their body language, right? It's, it's, it's very similar to like, do you have a a dog by any chance? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can read your dogs, you know if your dog is happy, sad, excited, whatever, sick, all by these subtle bot, they can't talk to you, but you can figure it out. So that same kind of thing is happening in, you know, subconsciously when you're watching Henry, you know, warm up, come in, say hi, how he gets on the table, everything. You can just sort of see it. So as you, as you develop the relationship with the athlete, you can get more and more accurate. So I almost feel like you can kind of be less dependent on the objective measurables, right? Morning temperature, heart rate, HRV. We talk about the reliability of those things in a second. Um, and then you can use your subjective because you're, you're better at it. You have a better relationship. The other thing that, um, you know, I think it's comical, like the, <laughs> what all of those systems sell is the idea where, you're going to get up in the morning and you're looking back. Oh, cool. It says I can train in today. Great. <laughs> or you get up and it's like, Ooh, it tells me like mine told me to rest. And I was just like, go fuck yourself. Like I'm not rest. Like, you know, yeah. so to me, I would love it. HRV, right? I would, I love the concept behind HRV because it's tapping into this deep neurology, right? The autonomic nervous system, right? So um, for I just for those of you that don't know, you've heard HRV, I'm sure, but HRV is basically a measurement of the variability, micro variability between heart rates, and the, you want it to be more variable because that's showing that the the heart and the brain is responding to the hundreds, if not thousands of millions of input, right, subconscious, subcortical, autonomic input into the into the system, and then the heart rate. Will change the space between the beats changes microscopically. When you have a low number, that means that you're more stressed, and the sympathetic nervous system is is just suppressing all of that and then holding the heart rate very consistent. That is incredible, right? To the best of my knowledge, it was invented to measure pilot stress levels back in the fifties. Amazing. The problem is, I've tried um, Aura, Morpheus, and now Garmin. And I know the Apple Watch has one, and they're all vastly different. Hmm. They're vastly different, and so and I'm just like, it, it's it's a measurement. Like you can't. It'd be like it would be like a scale measuring my weight. One tells me I weigh two twenty six. One tells me I weigh two hundred five. One tells me I weigh three fifteen. It's like what what is going on? So I, I get frustrated with them because they're very imprecise, right? So I think that they are no different than like a compass. It just tells you like, okay, that's north is that way. Okay, you're facing that direction, cool. So it's, it's, it's a great measurement that you can put on top of other things. Morning temperature is way more accurate. And I don't mean temperature off your wrist. I mean, I used to take axilla temperature. It's more accurate, right? So you wake up in the morning, you get your heart rate, morning heart rate, objective consistent, reliable data, morning body temperature, objective, consistent, right? You get those two. Those are way more valuable and consistent than HRV. HRV is all over the board, right? Now I like having HRV. I love my sleep score, but I would bet at at the top end, they're 60% accurate at the top end. I just, I don't, I've gotten out of bed before and I look at my aura ring and it's like trouble falling asleep last night. I was like, no, it's fucking out cold in three seconds. What are you talking about? And it told me that I took two hours to fall asleep. And I'm like, I looked at my wife and I was like, she's like, yeah, you were like totally out cold in like 30 seconds. I was like, great. So I think that they're valuable, but we can't lean on them and say, oh, no, 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 Henry, you came in, you're, you're, well, you did it. You did it. He came in. And his, his recovery was good. His sleep score was good. And you're like, yeah, that's not right. So then you just depend on your, your wisdom and the knowledge that you've developed. Yeah. So to me, there are they're, they're trends that you want to, you want to follow, right? Yeah. So if you're watching, I don't really care what your HRV is today. I care what your average HRV is over the last 60 days. Or we just switched over, you know, we're doing a three-week program. And at the end of that program, your HRV just kept going down and down and down and down and down. Your morning heart rate kept going up and up and up and up and up. Your morning temperature kept going up and up and up and up and up. If it's doing that, then you can kind of see a trend. It's like, Ooh, I need to maybe throw in, you know, a little bit of recovery in here to get them back into, you know, what I call the yellow zone, which is the, the training load, volume times intensity divided by time that's stimulating an adaptation to which they can recover from, right? The red zone, you're pushing them hard. You have to do that sometimes. You might be doing this in your fight camps. You know, in the beginning of it, you're pushing them hard and then you drop down into the green zone so that they can recover and go into the fight and kick ass. But you might use the trends of those three objective measures we're talking about, morning heart rate, morning temperature, morning HRV, and you're just saying like, okay, I'm just going to follow that. But the idea that you would be like, oh man, my HRV, it dropped 10 points today. I can't train hard today. That is not how it fucking works. That's just not how it works. Like you just can't do that. Now, what are your thoughts, guys' thoughts on that? Well, I think it.
2: And you're talking about modulating it both based on objective measures and in your feel. I think athletes intuitively do it on their feel all the time. You know, how hard are you going to train in practice? And they may do it subconsciously or not, but you talked about Gordon Ryan earlier and like he's notorious training every day, right? That's what he does. He trains every day. He just modifies his effort or intensity level depending on what his um, RPE is or what his audio-regulated status. Now, I would argue that takes a ton of skill as an athlete, and you're never really going to get
1: an accurate picture of that. But- I, mean, I don't know if I'd call it skill. Um, <clears throat> he's probably gifted in, in feeling his body and, and knowing. Some athletes are very, very aware of like what they can do and what they can't, um, and some are, are not. And Then the longer you train, the better you're able to sort of auto-regulate. I like that term, auto-regulate the micro-intensity of every rep, literally every rep. Like it's not just like, oh, okay, you're doing squats and you're doing, you know, sets of five at 80% with three minutes rest in between. It's how hard are you working with each one of those reps and really good athletes. I did another podcast on this. um, I called it landing the plane because the coach can prescribe something, right? The tower can get the, 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 the plane lined up. Right. The the autopilot can get the plane in the in the neighborhood of the airport. Then the tower lines you up. Then the pilot has to grab the controls and land the plane. So the coach can help them with the with the dosing and the prescription. But at the end of the day, the 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 micro intensity of what they're doing with every rep, every rolling session, whatever whatever they're doing, the athlete has to be able to do that. And if they do it really well, they're going to um get stimulate a better response without getting Well, they could still get injured, but like they're less likely to get injured. Right. Right. And so that's, that's, that's the cool thing. Now, here's an interesting question that I, that's been bouncing around in my head. If you're dosing correctly and the athlete is auto-regulating well, is there a need for, for recovery time? Like like rest weeks, like down weeks. I don't mean like you obviously need to sleep well and nutrition well and all those things. Right, but Like a deload. Do you need a d de- is there such a thing as a D-load if you're dosing correctly? So think about Gordon Ryan. Yeah. He's probably not doing a lot of D loads because he knows exactly how hard he can be training. So what do you think? Well,
2: I think yeah, because even when we're auto and everything's going well and camp, we still have to have periods of high stress to quote unquote, um, to overload the system, right? We have to have those periods of high stress and then we have to come down off of that to stimulate enough change is kind of what I would think is the classical strength, conditioning, periodization. Model, yes, for sure. Right? So well,
1: what that, I would say is like, that, that's, you can do that. And I, and really we can fight over the nuance of this, but if, at the end of the day, you're going to do it with some athletes and not with others. But you can also, instead of, so think about this, the harder into the red zone you go, the longer you're in the red zone, the the more time you're going to have to spend in the green zone. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So instead of just throttling yourself into the red zone for three weeks or six weeks and then dropping into the green zone for a week and then throttling it and then dropping it, why wouldn't you just go up and down in and out of the yellow zone and the top end of the green zone? so you can you can do it like instead of doing like this like you come up then you rest you come up then you rest it's, it's just this the whole time yeah
0: well but, but so what I mean. you're saying right there that's why i wanted to bring it up earlier and it's cool we came back to it i think dose is more important than prescription yeah in in my oh, mind i
1: totally agree cuz this goes back to like what we started with which is like the complexity it's no no no, no you're just pushing <laughs> Yeah, and we we just need you to improve your your metabolic capacity to hinge in a five minute period. Yeah, so it doesn't like okay. We can do all kinds of hinges. We could name a hundred different kinds of hinges, but I, I do agree with you that the actual dose is more important than the prescription.
0: Right. Yeah, but in, like in muscle. most cases, a lot of people don't see it like that. They, they think about the minutia, they think about the complexity when in reality, if we dose everything correctly, we don't need loads. And talking about Gordon, I think what those types of athletes do well is they don't necessarily take loads; They just increase their movement variability and train a new skill. So well, that's not- another
1: thing that, that goes into that. If you have high movement variability, then you're less likely to sort of beat up any one given tissue. and So then you're not going to need the, the deload as much. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that the answer is some athletes are going to need to go through periods where you got to kick their ass and really, really push them. Um, you know, you guys probably aren't doing heavy squat cycles or things like that, but you could just do like, um, I just call it engine block work where you're just trying to make their engine bigger. So, you know, struct or, or structural work. So you're getting them in there and you're like, hey, dude, you need to gain seven pounds of mass. Okay. So you got to work to do that. And if you do that, then like pushing in and recovery, pushing in and recovery is, is a good way to do that. But I also think that one that's less popular, I think it's because it's harder to dose is, you know, just like micromanaging
0: the intensity. Right. Well, it's because people don't understand the con a lot of people don't understand the concept of minimal effective dosing. They're, they're right. either all on or they're all off. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. No, no that's I, the, that's, well, it just doesn't make any sense to an athlete. Yeah. It makes no, no right. sense to an athlete.
0: Actually, I, back to the,
1: the tr- Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I don't even know if we've described that. And I think you do a really good job, Rich. Can you talk about minimal effective dosing a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean,
1: the that, that goes back to my, my tachometer analogy. So you have You know the green zone is where that's where you're recovering, and if you stay in that green zone, that's the training load volume times intensity divided by time. If you stay in that green zone, you're going to recover, and to be honest with you, you'll actually decondition there a -hmm. little bit. So we need to go into that Um, if if you want if the if the athlete's injured or whatever, or you're going into a comp, you want to make sure that they're fresh and sharp and ready to go. Um, The yellow zone is kind of where you want to spend most of your time, and that's where you're you're stimulating an adaptation. And, but they can actually recover from it, right? And then the red zone is you're absolutely, the stimulus is stronger, but um, the longer you're in the red zone, the the farther into the red zone you are, the more likely you are to get injured, right? That's, that's kind of the three things. So the dose, the, the minimum effective dose is where you are basically prescribing sets, reps, tonnage, you know, tempo, intensity, whatever you want to measure it with you're going to dose it in a way that that gets the desired adaptation without doing more than you need to, right? Yeah. And the reason more than you need to is, is a bad thing in some cases is there's some untowarded effects that come from that. So you're like, okay, we're going to do 10 sets of squats instead of seven. Okay, cool. So then you do that. And yeah, sure, it might work on the squat, might not be that bad, but then you're going to have um, HRV will go down, body temperature will go up, um, sleep will start getting a little bit beat up. Then you're gonna have cortisol levels are going to rise. Testosterone levels are going to drop. And you have all of these, you know, long-term metabolic responses, endocrine responses to the training. Basically what we're describing is you're slowly moving towards overtraining, right? And overtraining is a continuum. It's not a, it's not a diagnosis. <laughs> it's like rhabdo. Like you can have rhabdo and not have Coca-Cola colored pee. Like it doesn't, like you can have rhabdo, you know, and people don't realize that. No, 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 oh, no, I had rhabdo or I did. No, 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 no. You can like, you know, I, I've unfortunately had rhabdo before, but it wasn't so bad that I had to go to the hospital, such as the case with overtraining. And so if you do more than necessary, then that's going to push them farther in, in the red zone, push them faster towards overtraining. And then you're going to have to like hit the emergency break and do a rest week, right. Or a rest period, two weeks, three weeks. I mean, whatever, depending on how, how late, how far into this process are are you figuring out like, Oh shit, yeah. they're working way too hard. Like they're losing their, their appetites. Their sex drive is dropping right? They're not sleeping very well. You know, all these weird things that start to happen, you know, their nails are getting thin. I mean, like all kinds of crazy things that happen. So the dose matters because you want the desired adaptation, but at the end of the day, we want them as healthy as possible for when they go to battle, which is not an analogy with you guys. It is with me. Yeah,
2: no, but I think that that's hugely important to understand and recognize, especially in the MMA population. Like I feel like, So much of my MMA athletes live in the doing more than necessary category, right? That's, you know, the training culture of the sport. But I also think that they've, by doing that work, they've built up such a capacity to handle it, right? Like they have their capacities through the roof and they can handle it, but it's still not optimal for performance. You're in that sense, training to be a better trainer. You're not training to perform in that in my Yeah. Head. I mean,
1: it also um, goes back to, so you had asked about how do you establish trust with an athlete? And we answered that, but now we can answer like, well, why is this so important? So one of the things that anytime that I, when, I remember every time I worked with an athlete, um, they would go through and do the programming. And the after the first program, they would inevitably tell me, I mean, to the best of my memory, a hundred percent of the time they would say, I'm not doing enough every single time. They're like, dude, I'm not doing enough. I'm like, just leave it alone. Like I'm training power athletes. So we're not doing metabolic stuff or whatever like that. So it's not like I'm, you know, just putting them out on the floor with training it's, but it's like, you know, high dynamic stuff or bands or, you know, ballistic work mixed in with other like weird stuff. And so it they get done. And I always program, I always think about um, the nervous system, right? So to me, the endocrine system is dumb not, not i mean not dumb meaning like it it doesn't require specificity to to effectively train it the muscular system same way the nervous system requires high levels of specificity and it changes instantaneously so because the adaptation is so fast in the in the nervous system if you want to dial that in you have to basically be programming everything is for the nervous system and then the other ones it's just get work in right? So you're just thinking like, okay, I need to get their metabolic endurance better. Okay, well, we'll just get on the bike, get on the assault, you know, get on the, get on the rower, get on the skier, just get your work done. And in six weeks, eight weeks, you're going to be better. The nervous system, if you did the same movement for eight weeks, your nervous system would get flat. So it loves change, right? So it loves change. So to me, I'm always thinking about like the nervous system so that I can sort of micro change that, right? Cool. So with the athlete though, when they come in and I'm making changes or things like this, or, and I'm thinking like long-term, the math doesn't work for them to say, no, 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 you only need five sets, not seven, right? The athlete, any, any athlete that, that's worth their weight in carrots can, can basically just go in and they want to push super hard. So it doesn't make any sense that they would ever walk out of the gym without tremendous fatigue. This is why CrossFit worked. I mean, it was so popular, right? So the coach's relationship with them is so valuable there because the coach can say, no, 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 no. You need to be doing this. And if they they trust you and you've established a good relationship with that athlete – then they will actually go, okay, I, I've bought into this program, right? Better to believe in a, a bad program than not believe in a good one. So what we're trying to get is the ideal situation where they're believing in a good program. And so the trust thing, the psychology thing, all matters so that you can dose the athlete correctly, right? It's all it's all hinged on that because every athlete that walks into the door, I mean, like to to give you... Uh, a really good analogy with uh, an athlete you've probably never worked with distance runners right so distance runners kind of come like i mean literally it's usually their junior year in college when they finally figure out like hey dude when i say just go out and just get you know just garbage miles just run easy you don't have to run like fucking six flat miles run 730s eight flat miles i don't care and they don't get it because every time they, they step on the track or get on the road, they want to go. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is just volume work. Right. So I don't know if you guys do a lot of, um, carries and sled pushes and pulls, but if I were training MMA people or, or, um, combat sports, I would do a shit ton of that. But that's just like the, the, it's just dosing. It's like, I don't know, just fucking just grab the sandbag and just Go walk for 20 minutes. I'll see you in a second. I'll see when you get back. Like, it doesn't – it's just – you're just getting working, right? It's just getting working. Over time – again, back to the simplicity thing, right? Yeah. We don't need to get into the nuance of just, I don't know, just pick a fucking bag, carry it, and then when you get tired, put it down and rest and pick it back up and walk longer. Do that for 20 minutes. So we don't have to, like – you know, like, oh, no, no, I want you to hold here and make sure that the elbow's like this and the scaps and get no, – in. no, fuck it. Just put the thing in your shoulder and go. Like, that's pretty right. simple. But that athlete has to – to sort of trust you to know that like, okay, we don't need to do more than this. And I just need to like, trust this guy, play the long game and just get the work in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that happens
2: in a lot of MMA. And like, it's funny that you mentioned like your distance runner, junior year of college is kind of when they hit that crossover where they understand the training load for a lot of MMA athletes. I think it's like when they finally get a big paycheck, then they have the confidence and less of the scarcity mindset where they're like, all right, now I can, start to yeah that's a good uh, hmm,
1: one what would be the analogy so for for distance runners they figure it out because they either are not getting better or they're breaking one of the two right so when you're just doing like okay so when i'm thinking about programming I, i break it up into primary secondary and tertiary movements primaries are like your your big ones like your squats cleans snatches all that kind of stuff secondaries are sort of like kind of like that but not you know, not quite as important. Tertiaries are going to be just work. So hypertrophy stuff, functional capacity shit, um, working on functional competence, like dorsiflexion, hip mobility, whatever. And so when I, I used to think like, this is how ridiculous I am. I used to measure on all of my programs, the ratio between time under tension and rest time. So I would know, okay, my muscles were under contraction for 32 minutes and 44 seconds, and I was resting for only 15 minutes and and 28 seconds, or or I was resting for one hour and 14 minutes, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Stupid, right? That that, that goes way back to what you said before, like getting too far in the weeds, totally unproductive, right? Cool to go through, glad as a coach and and an educator that I did it, totally worthless for an athlete, like on every single level. So I would go through and like figure that out. Well, now I'm that picky with the primaries, one, two, maybe three movements. Not really. Usually it's two, and I'm hyper specific about the dosing, like Austin was mentioning, of those. And the farther down the program they get, the less I care, right? So I, and this is where like Cross has influenced me a ton. So now in some of my secondary and tertiary stuff. I'm not thinking like, okay, we're gonna do. Um, I need to work on some some posterior chain stuff, right? So, okay, cool. I used to go, okay, we're gonna do, um, we're gonna do some RDLs. And it's gonna be three zero three tempo. We're gonna do a chain on there, and I want to do, you know, cool. And you can do that. I can give them a tempo, but now I might just be like, okay, you're gonna do three zero three, so six seconds. If I was gonna do it for ten, like that's a lot, sixty seconds. So now I'm just going, to yeah, – I get Like if it's gonna be in a tertiary movement, I'm not putting a tempo on it. I'm just like, unless I need to slow them down, like stop the bell at the top or something. Then I'm just going to be like, all right, you're just going to do five rounds of 15 RDLs or or 15, you know, 15 kettlebell swings, you know, start or maybe do some double unders. Let's get some heart rate going in there. And then we're going to do just some kettlebell swings and then some sandbag lunges. Just CrossFit programming. So just do, you know, you're doing 50 double unders, you're doing 15 swings, and you're doing 10 alternating lunges with a sandbag. And you're just going to go through that five times. Just move through it. What's the rest time? I don't fucking care. Just just move through it. You know, just make sure that you're just you know standing you know effort level. You know, you're standing that 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 zone two, zone three thing. Like yeah. my measurement that I gave you before. Sure. I just don't care as much, right? I just want it to be no. Just get the work in. Just yep. get the volume work in. So with the runners, what they do is by throttling yourself on your recovery days or your off days or for them they're just kind of getting their mileage in you actually hinder your ability to get after the important workouts right your interval training your 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 um uh, just any aerobic capacity stuff your speed work right your there's the, a the thing called threshold training where you're running at the exact pace where you're aerobically clearing what you're actively producing the, the, the less effectively you're recovering on your other days, the less intensely you can tackle the important workouts. So if you're throttling yourself on your recovery days, and then you come in and you guys are like, Hey guys, we got to go after, um, I don't know how much metabolic conditioning stuff you're doing, but if you're, if you're going to be like, okay, we're going to do, um, I just love sandbags. so I'm just going to keep talking about it. We're going to do, you know, double unders sandbag cleans and the assault bike right? Heavy sandbag cleans, right? And you're just going to do this and we're going to do two minutes on three minutes off. Okay. So now you got two minutes work, three minutes, work. you can fucking throttle yourself in that two minutes. I need them to do that. So in order to do that, they have to be in a place psychologically and physically, physiologically where they can push so that they can dose themselves appropriately. Well, if they're killing themselves in their recovery days, because they're, you know, they're, they're hitting the assault. Like, let's say, they, like Austin, you just give them, like, okay, I just just come in and just hit ten thousand meters on the rower, easy. And they're in there, like, trying to pull a one fifty for ten thousand meters. and They right. come in the next day, they can't hit the workout that you actually care about hard enough. You don't give a shit about the row. You are just saying keep the blood flowing, keep it moving, just volume work, man. Just get it in. Or if, if they're going to do a carry, like, okay, because we're going to push into the nasal breathing here. All right, I want you to. 20 minute carry nasal breathing. Every two minutes, you're just going to grab the sandbag. You're going to do five cleans and then keep walking with the bag on the other shoulder. Well, if they came in and instead of using like a 40, cause you don't care, they're like, okay, I'm going to go after them use a hundred pound bag today. Cool. <laughs> so then they do that. They throttle themselves and then they get into like their Monday smash it metabolic conditioning, getting ready for, you know, actually having the capacity to be able to fight you know, and whatever rounds are doing, well, then they're tired and they can't push it. That's the equivalent of the distance runner going out and like crushing six flat, you know, miles when they should be running eight flat miles. So I guess to tie a bow on it. It's you, the, you have to think, okay, one or two workouts a week, maybe three, if you're just crushing them, that's definitely red zone shit. Um, those are the focuses. Everything else is accessory to that. So everything else you're doing, whether you're working out or recovering is designed to make those events better. So if you're pushing too hard on your off days, you're going to hinder your ability to hit those hard, right? So that's, that's why that's so important.
0: Well, I think it's important to draw a parallel before we get into nasal breathing that this exact thing happens in every single fight camp because people are trying to drop weight. If we're dropping Uh weight, they feel like they need to run more and they need to run more intensely. When I prescribe a like a zone two running to them and they just, an athlete decides to go, Oh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to sprint today. And you then you're like, this is worthless. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, wants to I tell hard. them, Hey, just go run for 45 minutes at zone two. You could you should be able to do that. And then they go and do they instead do fucking interval sprints or some shit like that. And then they're at a deficit for their number one thing in camp is fucking sparring. You need to be able to perform on your sparring days to implement your game plan. But if you go and run at that interval sprints, when it's supposed to be zone two and more restorative running, guess what? You're going to be at a deficit when you have to go do your actual fucking job.
1: Right.
2: Yep. And I, I think that goes back to, again, trust in your programming and, and your execution as well. But um, and one little aside, very small. I don't, I don't think we need to get into the weeds on this one. But a lot of what you're talking about, Rich, sounds like, like a Charlie Francis high-low model. Is that
1: influence there at all? Um. No, I'm I'm not super familiar with that. So no, I mean I'm sure he thought of it before I did. But <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it when people are like, oh yeah, I invented this. No, you didn't. You, I right, mean, no. you you saw this somewhere and someone influenced you, and it's just like pump the brakes on how you know you know you you invented this. No, so you're talking about like you know back to the pushing hard, you know, a couple of days a week and then recovering. Yeah. 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 It, so there's, it, it, there's two broad ways. And I, again, I don't know where these came from. Um, you have the mentality, this actually goes back into the, do you need a recovery weeks? So, but this is in, we're talking about this, the micro cycle of just a week. Right. So you can do, um, you know, like, well, let's just talk about squatting. So you're like, okay, I'm going to squat. You could squat once a week. You could squat twice a week, or if you wanted, you could squat three. And I've actually done programs from squatting five days a week. Well, the more frequently you're doing it, the higher the the total volume or total tonnage, depending on how you're measuring it, the less intensely anything could be. Here's another dumb thing that I used to measure. I would take my squats and also all of my movements, okay? So I would count my total reps in the month or the program, and then I would calculate the total tonnage moved, and I would divide the reps into the tonnage. So it's a measurement of intensity. What was my average rep squat in that six-week period? Okay. (laughs) So it's a cool number. Again, too far into the weeds, totally fucking worthless. Don't do it with your athletes. But if I'm doing a program, like I used to do this with the runners, what is their average mile they're running? So when they're just in the off-season and they're just doing zone two heart rate shit, let's say that you take a a four-flat miler and their average mile, all of their miles, their warm-up miles, their workout miles, everything, because they're not doing a lot of workouts, they're not doing a lot of speed work, you take their average mile, right? And that's including if they're doing 200-meter intervals or 400-meter intervals. That counts. That all counts, right? So it's, there's a lot of math in here, but you say, okay, they're in the off-season. They're just getting volume in, and then they're doing their average mile. Four flat miler, their average mile is like 730, that means that they're just getting tons of volume in. But then as they get closer to competition, that average mile might drop down to like 540, 530, because they're spending more of their time hitting the intensity, right? So with the, the, the Charlie Francis one, I, th- I think um, what he's saying or what you're saying is like you can have – we're going to hit my Mondays and Thursdays. I'm going to hit squats really hard, and then I'm going to recover really hard. And you can and should do that, right? That's going into the red zone on Monday coming out of the red zone, going back into the green zone on Tuesday and Wednesday, into the red zone, back down, right? You can also just do just mass, like, tonnage work. Where you're okay, five days a week, you're going to come in, we're going to do some squats. I used to do the same squat. I would change the squat motion a little bit. Back to Austin's idea, instead of worrying about the prescription, I would do the dose. So, like, I would just change the movement that I'm doing. Because I'm just, this is volume work. I'm just trying to get big. I'm just trying to get massive. And so, like, you know, you might just alternate like, okay, one day you're doing barbell back squats. The next day you're doing front squats. And then the third day you're doing, um, sandbag squats on a single shoulder. Okay. And you're just doing, you're just going to come in and you're just getting three sets of 15 and then you're done. Like, so you can't do 10 sets if you're doing that every day. Right. So there's an inverse relationship between volume and intensity, but there is value to doing that one right? So I, I tend to spend more time with my athletes w- doing like the, you know, higher intensity days and then lower intensity days. But there's absolutely times I, w- I, don't, I wouldn't do five days of squats anymore, or six days of squats, actually what we're doing. But there's times when I might do three days a week, where I'm just having them just get work in, but it's much, much smaller volume, the dose is smaller, but it's just it's basically the consistency over time. Right? So Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, that's how you're staying in like the high yellows versus
2: going out to the reds. Is that correct? We we're
1: always trying. So it, with the the Charlie with the what was it called the high intensity? Yeah, it's high low method is how I high low method. Sure. So with the high low method, the average of the week needs to be in the yellow zone, but yeah. then within the workout, you're going to go more into the red zone. Now, you would have with both of them. Let's just call the high low method and the tonnage method, right? So with the tonnage method and the high-low method, you theoretically could have this the, without the, throughout the whole week, the average you know, score would still be in the yellow zone. But yeah. within the workouts, the high-low method, you're going to go into the red, into the green throughout the week. Whereas with the tonnage method, you're just sort of like floating right in that yellow zone the whole time. So it's sure. two different things. I yeah. would, again, back to the nervous system thing, I think that the tonnage one works when you're trying to work on structural adaptation. So you're just trying to make the athletes bigger, higher capillary density, uh, more mitochondria, increase their VO two max, like whatever those things are, or just, you know, just get them structurally stronger. Cool. That tonnage model works. Right. And it's also very easy on the nervous system because the nervous system is stimulated by change. So yeah, you can have not- micro changes like you're just changing the weight. You can have, you know, sort of changes where you're like, okay, we're just going to change the reps a little bit. And then you can have just massive changes where you're like changing the exercises or the tempo or the contraction type. Those are like Just depending on how big the change is, that's a bigger stimulus for the nervous system to adapt, right? So the nervous system, it's kind of easy on the nervous system if you're just doing like the same movement, only three sets, five days a week. Right or the same pattern. Just stick with what Austin was talking about earlier, and the ner- there's not a lot of adaptation there. But we don't care about neurological adaptation at that point because it's in the off season. I just need you to put on seven pounds of legit muscle. So just go ahead and go. Now going into fight camp where you need your nervous system sharp. Now if you're training for something very specific, right. So combat sports is specific, but it's not nearly as specific as like Olympic weightlifting. Like there's very little variability there, right? You could go into a fight and it could be 20 minutes of work. If you're doing a championship fight and it's all five rounds, I get that right? Five minutes, five rounds? five. Yeah. 25. 25. Did I say 20? So I did the math wrong, but I knew what the thing was cool. Um, so you could, they, they could be completely different. So if I go to the world championships or I go to just some like pickup competition, it's six throws it's, or it, sorry, it's, it's three snatches and three cleaning jerks. We're done. Yeah. So the more specific the task, the more important the neurology is. Right. So that's why you have to train for the nervous system. With what you guys do a lot of times, like what Henry was doing, so you were doing 15 seconds on, 45 seconds off for the skier. Okay, cool. So that's working pulling. That's working lats. That's working – he had this crazy fucking strong um, flexion. Like he was so powerful. It's awesome. Hashtag jealous. But you could have just put him on the bike and done the same thing. You put him on the rower do the same thing. And depending on where you're at in the season, it doesn't fucking matter because you care about – his systemic adaptation to that stimulus not his specific adaptation right you want his metabolic capacity at large to get better not his metabolic capacity for you know you know ex- shoulder extension and, and and trunk flexion you don't really care right you might think okay, okay yeah maybe I, I that matters but i would argue with mma like having high variability but the dose the dose is the same on the metabolic system So you're going to do bike. Okay, we're going to do bike. Okay, then we're going to do the rower. Then we're going to do, you know, this. And it's still, the dose is the same, 15 seconds on, 45 seconds off. But the movement changes all the time because, again, you don't care about the neurology at this point. You care about the structural adaptation. So that's the endocrine system and the muscular system, right? So with those, again, they're dumb. They don't need a lot of variability. They just are responding to fatigue, time under tension, all that kind of stuff the nervous system needs high variability because it is at its best when it's at, when it's adapting to something.
0: Yep. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Let's talk about nasal breathing a little bit. Cause I want to pivot. And I also want to talk about your functional capacity work. Cause I use that a lot. That was one of the biggest things I ever got from you was functional capacity work and understanding the difference between capacities. So let's tie them both together. Nasal breathing first. What do you like about nasal breathing?
1: So, okay. So I, I read the book, I can't remember if it's breathe or breath. I can't remember. But um uh and it was it was goodish, um but I read through it and I like, okay, fine. This is interesting. <laughs> and everything in that book and everything on um what is? I could look it up on Instagram. Prime I think Brian McKenzie's part of it. Um, I know Andy Galpin is um HHP Oh, look you at higher
0: human performance or something like that? Yes,
1: maybe that one. It seems great because I'm I'm intrigued by it. So everything that they that they talk about for the, that that I'm aware of, and everything that the book talks about, is the is the metabolic and biochemical um, advantages of nasal respiration. Cool. So I'm training for this kettlebell thing, and all of those are important factors. So I said, okay, I'm just going to start practicing this. And so I I started like you know I went right into it with swings. Which now that I've trained people on nasal respiration, that's like almost the hardest that you can possibly do, right? It's intermittent, explosive, right? It's high force demand, high metabolic demand, high respiration rate. That's literally the hardest that you could possibly do it. So respiration rate is is, is the, the most important st- um, factor for nasal re- challenging nasal respiration, right? So I went right into it just stupid. I was like, hey, this isn't working. Well, I also do cycling. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go out on my hour bike rides or my two hour bike rides, mouth closed the whole time. So just zone two, that's the best zone two to learn it. That's the best. And so I just started practicing it. Cool. So I'm doing this. I'm doing like the, you know, I, I had to use like a, I don't, I can't tape doesn't work. So I'm doing all the weird shit. Like, um, I'll use like a headband to keep my jaw closed at night. All, all the stupid shit. Cause you know, I just <laughs> all about just learning it. Cool. So I started doing it. Well, then me with, you know, I've got all kinds of fun back injuries. And I would say like, without question, my, um, my specialty is understanding like trunk stabilization and all things to do with the trunk. That's like kind of what I've been diving into for the better part of a quarter century now. And I noticed that I was like, well, this is weird. I'm like stabilizing for things now, whether I'm doing like squats or, or swings, it doesn't matter. like, man, I'm able to stabilize, like pressurize all the way down against my pelvic floor, okay? So intra-abdominal pressure um, is, of course, pressure within the abdomen, but, you know, you always want to be able to pressurize all the way down to the pelvic floor. So I was like, man, this is weird. I'm finding it easier to pressurize against my pelvic floor. You need to do that because pressurizing down against the pelvic floor is what enables you to stabilize the lower lumbar segments, so L5, L4, sacrum, that kind of stuff. If you're not pressurizing all the way down to the pelvis, you're not getting the stability in those lower segments. So then if you, if you don't have sufficient intra pressure in the lower segments, you're going to get hyperactivity of your spinal extensors, period. It's just neurology, right? So I was like, man, this is weird. I can feel that I can pressurize down there easier. The other thing that was really important is that I was like, it requires less effort to achieve the requisite stiffness in this case of my trunk. So I'm like, this is weird. I'm, I'm, and it's a significant reduction in the effort. So it's not like 5%. It's like, man, this is like 50% easier to stabilize. Right? So I was like, man, this is really, really weird. So then I started noticing that my lower back, the lower segments, so L4, L5, and S1 kept getting less and less tight in my workouts right? I can work harder and harder and harder and get less and less tightness. So I'm at the point now where I don't think that you can stabilize correctly with your mouth open. Just go ahead and take her with it. Like, um, I unfortunately don't have, uh, I have lots of anecdotal evidence with patients now with athletes. Um, and of course with myself, there's the best I know is there's zero research on nasal respiration and stabilization. I don't know anyone that's talking about it. I don't know anyone that's researching it. Everyone that's talking about nasal respiration is talking about it metabolically and biochemically. For, sure. For me, um, I've, I've just found it profoundly helpful in stabilizing as efficiently as possible. So when I'm doing stuff now, anytime that I'm under load, my mouth is closed. Like, you know, now work gets incredibly challenging is in those rare moments you probably get into it with in in fight camp when you're when you're training a combat athlete or certainly CrossFit does this better than anybody where you're under load and your and your your heart rate is really high think of heart rate as a proxy measurement for respiration rate right so for me I know when when I'm practiced with nasal respiration I can maintain nasal respiration into my low 170s my max heart rate 185 right so yeah. um the max heart rate is 185. So I can literally hold that right, right at a little bit above 90% of max heart rate. Now, it's not easy, right? But I'm, I'm keeping my mouth closed. When I'm not practiced in it, um, it goes down into the 160s and even the 150s. So I've actually added in after I'm training. So I'm going to do some today, although this is not necessarily like it's interesting and fun, but it's not the same as um, training. I'm doing now two or three days a week. 20 minutes zone three, zone three, where I'm doing my nasal respiration. For me, zone three is going to be 132 to 154. So by adding that in over the last couple of weeks, I now find that it's easier and easier and easier. So when I, th- when I start getting to that panic level, I was like, okay, open your mouth. Now I'm in the 160s again. Before I was in the 150s and I was just like, oh man, I, where that you get that need where you want to open up. There's a little bit of a panic. It's almost like you're kind of drowning when your mouth is closed and you're, you, the, the athlete starts to panic or I start to panic. And then I look at my heart rate and I'm like, fuck, it's like 158. It's 154. Like, ugh, I need to get practice again. <laughs> so now I'm back on zone two training or zone three training after the workout. Because at that point, my heart rate's elevated. So it's easier to keep my heart rates in a range where I can then train nasal respiration. The reason I'm doing this is the the, the greater the amount of time that you can spend with your mouth closed and nasal respiration, the higher your movement quality. So if I can't keep my mouth closed with my heart rate above 130, I'm automatically going to be using what I call that extension compression stabilizing strategy. So if I'm hinging, my lower back is going to turn on, right? And I'm well aware that you can hop on you know youtube and find a million weightlifters with their mouth open and their head cranked back but there's something here yeah. that i like it's enough that i added it into my mastering trunk stability class so i have a whole section on nasal breathing how do you train it what are the what are the stressors for it what's the, the value of it the problem is I, re- I i really feel like we are way ahead of the curve here because there's not even anyone trying to research this to the best of my knowledge Right. So, I mean, and I've even talked to um, like sort of interacted with the, the human performance guys and I don't, I don't, they're not doing, I don't know if they're doing anything with this and they have great stuff that's coming out. So for me, the value of it has to do with the efficiency of my stabilization, the, the which the, the more efficiently you're going to stabilize, the higher the quality of your movements. It's, yeah. and with me, I have this very sort of fragile back so I'm kind of like a canary in the coal mine. Like I can, most people that, you know, have perfectly healthy discs and spine, they can't tell the difference. They just don't know. I can tell the difference. But if I can tell the difference, it's still going to have an impact on the athletes long-term, right? Because all we're trying to do is push the athlete as hard as we can without abstaining any permanent damage to their, their passive tissues. Okay, that's the, that's the name of the game, right? If you pull a muscle... Right, unless it's a bad pull, you can heal from that. If you tear cartilage, you tear a labrum, you tear your meniscus, you will never move the same again. Right. If you get surgery, you will never move the same again. That doesn't mean that you can't perform better by compensating. Like I'm performing better than I did when I was a quote unquote athlete in some cases, but the ceiling of my potential is pulled down by the injuries I have in my, in my back. Right. So anytime that you have damage to passive tissues you lower the ceiling of your potential, okay? A little bit, right? Just a little bit. Think of it like, you know, with, with snatching. Like, so I snatched 128 kilos is my best. Okay, well, if I didn't have a torn labrum on my, on my right side, you know, let's say that my max snatch, my, my potential, everything's perfect, was 140 kilos. Okay, well, I tore my, my labrum when I was, you know, 17 playing soccer in high school. Okay, now it's 139.8 kilos is my absolute max, Okay, well, then I, then I herniated a disc. Okay, now it went down to 137. Well, I herniated another one. Now it goes down to 132. So whatever that is, you see it, it's just all like theoretical. But the, the passive tissues are going to be the major factor that, it, that dictate what you can actually achieve in a perfect scenario. So the nasal respiration is so important because you maintain better movement quality. The better the movement quality, the more efficiently you can stabilize, the the better you can distribute the work amongst all the tissue, and the less load on the individual passive tissues, therefore less likely to abstain permanent damage to a passive structure. So it matters... Long-term in the injury game, it matters short-term because now if you're not working as hard to stabilize, like let's say we're back into combat sports, if I can stabilize my trunk really, really well, that means that I'm not tensing everything super hard so I can strike harder now. So now I'm more efficient at stabilizing, and so now I can relax my muscles and tense them when necessary. So then in, in the, in the short-term, the performance goes up as well. Well, what's cool
0: about that too, is then we can add in right from what you're saying with the efficiency of bracing, that just makes us actually punch even harder because then we bring in McGill's research with the double pulse or with the double impulse. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool stuff. And then we can go from that. If, If we know how to brace as efficiently as possible and know how to turn it on as efficiently and turn it off as efficiently as possible, that's actually going to allow us to increase the speed in the float phase, which is going to develop more velocity on our punches or on any of our strikes.
1: Yeah. 100%. No, no. I mean, that's, absolutely. So that's, that, that's, that's one major
2: thing. What were you, you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say the efficiency, you know, remains the end goal and the efficiency is, is huge in that. And I, I thought that would be a good segue into the uh, functional versus absolute capacity and how we can maximize both of those systems. Should we have this? Pre- yeah. So,
1: okay. So the, the, the functional capacity thing I came up with maybe 2014 and we have to kind of go in the weeds here a little bit because um, you have to get into the neurology of it now. All right, that's uh, what we like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, I, so so DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. I suppose this is a good point for me to, to say that I'm going to be teaching a class at the UFC Performance Institute called DNS Strength Training. Uh, one, which is an introductory class that anybody can come to, um, introduces the concept of DNS and applies it to most of the big movements. We stick to the sagittal plane. Cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, let, let me interject real quick. It is the number one course I've taken that has influenced me in my strength training and integrating strength training with performance and understanding the entire system. So I would highly, highly recommend everybody listening. Try to get to this course.
1: Yeah. And he knows his shit. So you could listen to him. <laughs> um, no, it's a great course. So the basically the reason I came up with it, the course, was DNS – for those of you that aren't, you know, into this, it's basically just a comprehensive explanation of movement and function, right? So that that appreciates the full complexity of neurology. Great. So I was taking this as a clinician and being like, God damn, this is amazingly influential to performance, to assessment, to changing the, again, the prescription is going to be different. The cueing that I'm doing, the technique I'm trying to achieve was completely revolutionized by my understanding of DNS. Cool. But it's a rehab system right now. It's, you know, broadly, it's an explanation of movement and function, right? Cool. But it's, it was created by Pavel Kolaj, who's a physical therapist, physiotherapist over in the Czech Republic. Cool. So most of what he's doing is with injured people. That's different than applying it to a fighter that's got to, you know, get in a fight, get in a cage in five weeks. Right. And so the intensity Of what you're doing metabolically, aerobically, you know, in terms of contraction, they're going to be different, but the, the actual, uh, principles still apply. So I went in there and was going to do a presentation on squat application of DNS to, to strength training. Cool. So I went in there, I was like, look, just doing, you know, three month position, we call it, which is triple flexion position, laying on your back, hips, knees, and ankles flex 90 degrees and working on your breathing stabilization stuff is not going to cut it when you want someone to be able to strike super hard or squat triple body weight, right? For sure, those patterns work. And in some way, that position is valuable for the athlete. But there is a huge gap between laying on your back and holding your legs up and breathing and trying to stiffen your spine sufficiently enough to squat a 1,000 pounds. Huge gap. So when I was doing this, I'm, of course, super nervous because I have to do this presentation in front of Pavel Kolaj and all the Czech therapists, right? Who I um, respect tremendously, right? So I'm all nervous. Like I'm the the only meathead on the team. And I have to go in there and do this, like I think 2015. And so I realized when I was trying to think how do you apply these principles – the gap or the the, the the gap was filled by this functional capacity thing. So in DNS, and I, I wholeheartedly believe this, you know, we, we as humans have evolved to move a certain way, right? So, you know, there's a certain synergy to shoulder movement, whether it's abduction or striking or whatever, that, that should be having a synergy, meaning the muscles working in a specific way and balanced out, again, to distribute the load amongst the entire kinetic chain and reduce any individual load on the passive tissues. Cool. That's that's what we would call functional centration. Um, essentially, if you're functionally centrated, you're moving more efficiently, you're going to be able to then perform on a higher level and you're less likely to get injured. Okay, done. So when we're doing this in DNS, we're of course trying to get the the patient at this point to move and stabilize well, but we now have to, as a coach, your job is to improve their capability of maintaining those movement patterns in whichever environment their sport demands, hence the functional capacity. So when you're born, again, sorry, this is way into the weeds. When, When we're born, as mammals or as, as humans, we have an, an underdeveloped or an incompletely developed nervous system. So you have muscles to which you don't have access, right? Your abdominal wall is not very active, the glutes not very active, right? Your deep neck flexors, your scapular depressors, your serratus and your lo- and, and lower trap. Um, and then as you go through development, the nervous system matures and you start acquiring you know, the ability to use those. And then those muscles that that activate later in development start integrating with the muscles that were present at birth, okay? Now, in Vladimir Yanda, who's one of like the the original guys that had the neuromechanical approach to movement and function well before anyone in the US did. So this is in the 70s and the 80s, uh, or 80s and the 90s, really. So he realized that over time, Patients tended to sort of gravitate towards um, the more, uh, basically what he called lower cross syndrome. So that's your hip flexors become over tight, your back becomes over tight, and then your abs become, you know, inhibited and so do your hip extensors. Cool. So he noticed that. That was something that he noticed in, in older patients. They tended to have these postures. Okay, then collage came along in the 90s with Václav Vojta, who's another Czech neurologist, and they kind of realized that the muscles that are active at birth tend to be what Yanda called tonic muscles—the ones that tend towards hypertonicity. Right, your spinal extensors, your hip flexors in this case, and your upper traps, your pecs, those kind of things. And the muscles that activate later in development tend to be the muscles that uh, tend towards inhibition. Your abdominal wall, your glutes, scapular depressors, deep neck flexors, foot intrinsics, like the the list goes on. So you had Yanda that just appreciated the the trend. Then you had Vojta um, and Kolaj that realized that, the, well, this is tied into developmental kinesiology. And then when I was trying to explain how to apply DNS to to strength training, I realized that like, well, there is a, you know, in an optimal system, you have so you have the tonic and phasic muscles. This is Yonda terms. Tonic are the ones that tend towards hypertonicity, phasic are the ones that tend towards inhibition. Tonic muscles are active at birth, phasic muscles are activated later in development. In in a functionally centrated athlete that's moving well, where the movement quality is really, really good, balance, coactivation, all that stuff. Those two muscles, muscle groups, are integrated together. And that's how you get balanced coactivation, optimal, like what I call joint position management for optimal performance. Yay. Well, what I realized is that the muscles that are activated later in life, right, in development, they're more neurologically fragile than the muscles that are active at birth. Okay. So we don't need time. In, in, in the biggest sense, like Yonda noticed it, for those patterns to express themselves, like, okay, take a 65 year old guy. Oh, yeah, he, you know, his back's going to be a little bit tighter, his hip flexors are going to be tighter, and his abs and his glutes are going to be weaker. We can actually accelerate that process within the course of a workout, shit, within the course of a set, within the course of a rep. You can push an athlete to go from um, uh, a pattern that's optimal, balanced co activation, to one that's Overloading the tonic muscles and you drive them into inhibiting the phasic muscles, right? So, to, to talk about like an example, you're squatting, and I can have someone, let's say they can squat perfectly. And by perfectly, I don't just mean macroscopic orientation. I mean like muscle synergy, all that kind of stuff. Okay, 135, no problem. 225, no problem. 315, it's hard, but they can still do it. But then you go up to 405, and now they can no longer execute that movement with the balance coactivation. And what happens is the phasic muscles become inhibited because they're more neurologically fragile than the tonic muscles. And then they execute the movement with a tonic posture as opposed to one that integrates the phasic and the tonic muscles. So the functional capacity is the the top end of the range or the functional threshold is the top end of the range where they can move and stabilize with those optimal movement strategies with a functionally centrated joint, right, to use the, the DNS term. Well, there's, there's three really kind of four strains or stressors that you can apply to the nervous system that can push them over that capacity. There's load, duration, speed, and now I've added movement complexity. Okay. So, and these are all neurological. This is not a, this is not mechanical. This is not metabolic, right? This is neurological stress and strain. So if you take an athlete. And you have them, let's say we're doing kettlebell swings, right? And let's say that you've got a guy and you've just decided that like, all right, I just need to get them really, really good at 30 second metabolic intervals, posterior chain stuff. Cool. Let's just do swings. We're going to do alternating single arm swings, 30 seconds on, 90 seconds off for 10 rounds, right? Whatever. Well, when they do that in the beginning, let's, let's stick with two arms. So we, we do that because I think people are doing two arms more so they can sort of feel this in their head. You're doing it, and let's say the first round, you're getting 30, you know, 38 swings in. Okay, cool. So you get 38 swings in. Everything's perfect. You do the next one. Okay, let's just say you're in really good shape. Everything's perfect. The third round now, now you're starting to get a little bit tired. And so if you want to keep going, you're, the, the phasic muscles are going to become inhibited first. They're so going to fatigue quicker. Again, it's a neurological fatigue. It's not a metabolic fatigue right? It's not like they're they're lacking ATP at this point or lacking glucose or whatever. Um, Neurologically, by pushing them there, the abs will start to turn off, the hip hip extensors start to turn off, and then your spinal extensors will start to slowly turn on and the hip flexors. And then you're going to gravitate into that extension compression stabilizing strategy over time. So you can take someone and by having them do sustained output for a, a longer duration, The phasic muscles will fatigue faster, and once you go over capacity, if you want to keep doing that movement, you're going to do so with decentrated joints or with less efficient movement quality. You could do the same thing with load that I just described with the squats. They're totally good up through 225 or 315. Anything over 315, they're going to have to use that extension compression stabilizing strategy to execute it, okay? The last one is speed. So, you know, the, I think the best example of this is, is sort of a loaded one because there's lots of factors that go into it, is, is non-contact ACL injuries. So somebody comes down off of a rebound, nobody touches them, they land, their knee goes into valgus, blows their knee out. Now, I know their cue angle and where they're at with their menstruation cycle or whatever are all factors on it, but another factor is there is a tremendous amount of speed of the contraction. So being able to coordinate the co-activation of all the muscles from the foot all the way up into the trunk to control valgosity. there is very, very fast. And if you go over that speed threshold, they're going to collapse into a position where your abductors aren't going to do their job and your ADductors, which pull you more into valgus, are going to become hyperactive. So not only do you have gravity pushing the knee into valgus, now you have the own body pulling the knee into valgus because you're moving too quickly right? So load, speed, and duration. The other one that I add in there is just movement complexity because it's a thing, right? That will drive them into into those patterns, right? So with those, when you're thinking about those three stressors to the nervous system, And we want to preserve the passive tissues for maximum longevity and maximum performance. That means that we want to make sure that they're performing really, really well and moving really, really well. So you can't just, back to the dose thing, you have to think at what point do they lose movement quality? And is that an issue of load, speed, or duration? And then you can dose it differently based on the athlete. What are the demands of the sport, right? Um, or where are they, where are they at in the season? So then if they have a problem with their movement quality and you might just notice it, like, you know, someone's form just goes to shit after they've been, you know, doing metabolic work for like, say four minutes, then their movement goes to shit. Well, that might be a capacity thing. So now you have to have someone where you're going to dose it in a way that's right at their threshold and you're going to do repeated effort. With rest, where you're just like pushing them to that threshold, hanging out there, rest, do it again, do it again, do it again. It's not even the nasal breathing that I'm going to do here in a little bit. It's just be right at that threshold, and then you can raise their functional capacity so that you can increase the amount of time that they're moving well, right? So that is a completely different um, variable that I don't think coaches are considering. They're just thinking, how much load is on the bar? Because the only thing that they're worried about is the absolute output. So there's a gap, I call it the functional gap, between their functional capacity and their absolute max. So it's easiest to think about in a squat. Okay, you got that athlete that is able to squat 315 with good quality, but let's say that they're able to actually squat 405 with, you know, that extension compression, but that's the most that they can do, right? You know, ammonia caps are out buddy's slapping them in the face to get ready. They can, they can get a 405 back squat, right? But if you take that same athlete and now you do some capacity work, maybe they can get to 365 without breaking their movement quality. And that what happens is your actual absolute max goes up a little bit as well, but now they're able to sort of maintain optimal movement strategies in a, a greater period of time. So they're moving more efficiently and they're loading their passive tissues less that's the value of it so for you guys you just want to be thinking not just about you know their absolute um, effort or their absolute uh, max you want to be thinking about like okay is there some threshold issue stuff and do we actually need to be working on that
0: well and yeah. what's cool is to to use your term kind of put a bow on everything e- The nasal breathing that you're seeing anecdotally, anecdotally, obviously, is going to increase the functional capacity of the movements. From what it sounds like, you're you're able to maintain biomechanical efficiency at a higher rate. Is what you're finding?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it requires less effort to stabilize well. So it makes everything
0: more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes really just about efficiency. Yeah, it makes it a
1: positive feedback
2: loop.
0: Yeah, and but that also makes it potentially a variable that more coaches should look into, because if it's not just making you increasing your aerobic capacity, dropping you away from fight or flight, all these things that we kind of know, if it's going to increase our functional capacity, that needs to be something that needs to be integrated into strength and conditioning training, because that's going to make our athletes more efficient and better through their movement or capabilities and thus transfer into our sport training a little bit better.
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure. It's just another factor that people need to be considering. Now, one thing that I, I, I always want to put a caveat on here <clears throat> is I'm not saying that one should only train at or below functional threshold. Yeah. So if, especially if you've got an athlete that has a large functional gap there, if I have a powerlifter that comes in, some of these guys, they couldn't do a squat with 135 with a proper pattern. <laughs> you know, and maybe they squat 880, who knows? Yeah. So the the absolute max is when you're getting the structural adaptations that we talked about earlier, right? We're increasing the tensile capacity of the muscles of the myofascial system. We're increasing contractile strength, um, mitochondrial density, like whatever, all the structural things that we're doing that happens when you're stimulating way, way up at that super, super high intense area. So we need to go there But we need to then realize that like, okay, we got to shut these patterns off and we need to be, you know, spending time with better movement strategies. Okay. So depending on where they're at in their season and how badly their capacity is for whatever sport they're doing, you may have to spend more or less time. Like if you're three weeks out of a fight, like, fuck it, just train. Like we're not going to like back off because if the person has a really bad capacity, they're nowhere close to fatigue when they're training it nowhere close. It's like nasal respiration. When I have people doing nasal respiration in the beginning, so let's say that they have a, a 185 max heart rate like I do. Okay. Well, they're going to go out there. They're going to get on the easiest way to do it is, is, is um, just consistent cyclical work as opposed to intermittent cyclical. Work. What I mean is consistent or constant, constant cyclical work would be the bike or the assault bike. Okay. Right. That means you're, it's constant output of just easy stuff right? Then the rower is intermittent, right? The skier is intermittent. Double runners is intermittent. Running is intermittent, right? You're you're contracting, relaxing, contracting, relaxing. It's better just to go out and just keep everything constant. So when they go out there, there are athletes that might have a max heart rate of 185. And if they get over a hundred, they can't keep their mouth closed. Okay. So if you just said, all right, you can only train where you can keep your mouth closed, but you also need to get them metabolically fit. It's never going to fucking happen. It's never going to happen. Like, so you have to push the athlete above capacity to go back to the functional capacity and and often the um, analogy with the nasal breathing. You have to be pushing them to that top level. The important thing is though, you need to make sure that at the end of the day when they're training, the pattern that you are most stimulating is the optimal movement strategy and not a compensatory pattern. So that might be with the squat, you know, you're doing things after training to make sure that you're shutting that pattern down, right? So um, it's a really, really important factor. It just requires, I think it's another thing for coaches to consider and you have to be it, the the hardest thing, the biggest limitation with it is you have to know when when the pattern is going to go back so i don't know how far we're way over the time that you wanted to, to chat <laughs> oh, <you're> but, kidding.
0: <laughs> um
1: how do you train this though so I, I guess maybe we have to answer this question so it, the you basically want to find their threshold okay so let me i'll just use an example i had a crossfitter in the other day she's getting ready to go down to wadapalooza and she um has sharp pain when she's doing uh ghd sit-ups Hashtag ridiculous workout or ridiculous movement. So she's doing GHD sit-ups and she was getting pain. She gets a pinching pain. She's actually had low back surgery. So she had a herniated disc, right? So she gets pinching pain when she does this. And I asked her, I was like, okay, cool. So we're, we're going to do some capacity work with her. So the, the job and treatment is in, to improve the athlete's capability of moving well. The job of the, the coach is to improve their capacity to move well in whatever environment their sport demands. Cool. So I've obviously worked on her capability to stabilize well and to flex her spine effectively, not effectively, efficiently with the proper movement pattern, right? That's very. That's laying on the table, you know, ab mats in there. I'm teaching her how to kind of like pressurize into the ab mat and, and all that kind of stuff. Cool. And that's very, very low intensity. She's not fatigued or anything like that. We're just working on the pattern. Well, then I said, okay, go do your GHD sit-ups and... There's, there's three lines that you can use to find the functional threshold. The best one is when the pattern breaks, okay? And that's the heart. It's the most precise, but it's the hardest to measure because the coach either has to see it break or the athlete has to have the body awareness to know when it breaks. So you have to talk to them like, okay, when it goes, your back will turn on, you might feel your belly kind of suck in, your ribs elevate, your shoulders will come up a little bit, and it's subtle. Well, if the athlete can't feel that, you're not with them all the time, or if you can't see it that well, it's a bad place to go. Then you've got the next one is tightness. So let's say that they've got an injury. In this case, this athlete had the back stuff. Okay, well, then when does the tightness present? because tightness presents before pain. And then the last one that's the most precise, but the farthest away from the actual threshold is pain. Make sense? So I said, okay, go do GHD sit-ups and tell me when you can actually, when you you start getting pain. And so she got pain at 42 reps, right? Which is ridiculous. Okay, cool. (laughs) I couldn't do 42 of those if if you paid me a million dollars. But... So, nonetheless, she's going to go to Wadapalooza, and who knows? They might have fifty, you know, ABMAT, Sorry, um, GHC sit up, buy-in. Who knows? So then I said, okay, fine. This particular athlete can't feel her body well. She doesn't even know when she really gets tight, and she definitely can't tell if she's like is is losing the positioning. So then I said, okay, fine. So you're going to take pain, and then we're going to drop that number way down. So instead of forty-two reps, I think we started at eleven reps. And we wanted it to be repeatable, right? And I was assuming that that 11 reps, right, was going to be right around her functional capacity. Because remember, pain is, if you're in pain, you're way past your functional capacity. If it was tightness, I might have done 15 reps. And if it was actually whenever the pattern broke, I bet you it would have broken somewhere between 18 and 22. Okay, So if you're using the threshold, you can go right up to the threshold and you're actually right below the threshold and you're doing repeated efforts with sufficient rest. So I said, okay, okay, Patty, you're going to do nine GHDs. It was nine. Nine GHD sit-ups and then you're going to rest for 90 seconds. Okay, she can do way more than that, right? And she's just like... That's not going to tire me out. It's was like, we're not doing metabolic work. We're doing functional capacity work. And so we just worked her up over time to where now, I, I don't know, we got her up into like 15, 16, 17 reps, and she's able to do those fine. I said, okay, go test them again. And she's just like, oh, I, I got to like 55, and I had no pain. Okay, we're done. Like, you don't need – I don't need you doing 100 GHD sit-ups, so you're done. So a little bit of functional capacity work had a massive impact on her actual performance, but that's kind of how you'd break it down. You would use pain or tightness or the actual loss of the pattern itself. If you lose, if it's right where the pattern is, then you know what the threshold is. If it's tightness, you need to drop the reps lower, right? For your actual repeated effort work. And if it's pain, you need to drop them even more. Yeah. Does that, make sense? Does that kind of make sense? No, that, so, that's a yeah, phenomenal system to play that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard because it's just another thing for coaches to think about. So I don't know. I, I think it once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like it's, it's all over the place. And, you know, to me, the capacity work and the functional, uh, the functional capacity stuff is is almost more important than the individual like platform weightlifting stuff. I mean, it's just, I was at a, um, I was working with a pro team last, a couple of weeks ago and they were asking me like, well, what would you, what would you do differently than what you did there? And I was like, way more like, um, sports specific stuff, right? This hat, this was a baseball team. So, you know, way more like med ball stuff and throwing and and, and heavier movements that are going to like convert the power that we've developed in the weight room onto the mound or, or, you know, into the bat. And before I was doing a little bit of that and a ton of the, you know, squatting and cleaning and snatching and all that kind of stuff. And so there's like, you know, Austin, you do a ton of this already, like where they're, they're doing lots of sort of like, it's, it's intermittent stuff, you know, for me, 20 years ago, I would have been taking those guys and and, and maybe I'm just emphasizing the strength of the strength and conditioning coach. Now, just to kind of close the loop on the whole conversation, I want to just keep it more simple and just realize that our job as strength coaches, strength conditioning coaches, is not to make them better at strength conditioning. It's to make them better at whatever they're paid to do. So, okay, so you're, you're, you're going to fight Okay, I need to make you better at fighting. I don't fucking care what your back squat max is unless I can justify how that's going to make you better at fighting. Amen, yeah. And just remembering that, I mean, I can't believe I didn't think of this when I was an actual coach. It's like pretty basic, but I remember just getting like, again, into the weeds and just going like, oh, yeah, cool, time under tension and total load and average weight. It really is like, okay, what are we trying to get them to do? I need them to be able to be just, you know, super explosive for six reps in a competition, three clean, three, three jerks and jerks, three snatches, right. Or soccer player. I don't need them to squat, you know, like however much weight I would, I would take these athletes that don't need this. And I'd get them like super strong or cleaning and stuff like that. Right. Really at the end of the day, you have the strength is on one part. That's the farthest away from their competition in terms of like what they're doing. Then you have the conditioning piece, And that's going to be sort of bridging the gap between the strength stuff that you're doing and the actual competition. So I would be, if I went back in and was a full-time strength conditioning coach, I would be a conditioning and strength coach where I'm emphasizing the conditioning piece and not de-emphasizing, but I certainly wouldn't be prioritizing it like I did my entire career. No, that's, yeah, that's significant. That's important to hear.
0: That's why we get along, Rich. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will... Um, I will be time sensitive to you guys. This was a ton of fun. I'm excited about, you know, what you guys are doing and trying to get this rocket off the ground. So that's, that's pretty cool. So it'll be fun to watch.
0: No, it'll be good. It'll be good to get everything kind of moving, moving in the right direction. But Rich, tell everybody where the course is again, when it is. um, And then we'll try to get this out so that I know there's a discount right now.
1: Yes. So at the end of this month, I have like an early, early bird to get it going. And there's actually already been a pretty good amount of people registering for it. And we have three instructors coming in. So it's me, Mike Rintala, and then um, Jakub Novak, who's one of the, the PTs from the Czech Republic. So we have tons of instructors and it's going to be at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas. It's March 4th through the 6th, which is a Saturday through a Monday. Um. And this course is really designed for anybody that that works with strength movements. So there is not a conditioning piece to this so so much, but we're going to go into a lot of what we talked about when we we're were discussing functional capacity, um, functional joint centration, the neurology behind that, all of that gets covered in this course because I want to get attendees able to apply the powerful principles of DNS to strength training movements. So, whether you're a clinician or whether you're a, a strength conditioning coach, it'll kind of change how you look at the athletes. It'll probably push you more into the neuromechanical model over the, the, the structural model or the biomechanical model. Um, and then it's just going to, you're, you're like how you're queuing them, what you're trying to do. All of that is just kind of, kind of change a little bit. And it's going to be more consistent with what I consider, you know, optimal movement strategies. So what we sort of describe in DNS. So the website is athlete-enhancement.com. You can follow me um, on Instagram at Athlete Enhancement. I'll put up a bunch of stuff there. Um, But it's a a super cool course, and I only offer it three times. So I do three times a year, and that's it. I'm the only instructor for it. So there's one in Las Vegas. There's one here in Columbus, Ohio in June. And there's one in Dallas, Texas in October, and that's it. So I'm the only one that teaches it. There's only three of those. Um, There is a, a strength training two. So in strength training one, there's actually three classes that we're making but one is really all about the sagittal plane, and that's actually the vast majority of movements we do in the gym—you know, swings, hinging, squats, all that kind of stuff. So it's all bilateral sagittal plane movements. In the in the extra in strength training, two, we actually get into coronal and transverse plane and unilateral movements. So now we get to talk about, um, you know torque and torsion, we get to talk about oblique slings, we get to talk about, you know, asymmetrical loading and what that does to the system. And we get into that there. And then the third one is all about sort of integration. And that's where we're going to really marry a lot of the DNS exercises with that and be able to assess them well, and be able to dose and prescribe the right DNS exercise to get the right pattern. So then we'll get into in the middle of a workout, you might have an athlete doing. You know, three month breathing pullovers, and then walking right in and doing the back squat. So we'll get into more programming stuff, and we'll get into more integration stuff. But all of those are built on like you have to to attend strength training one to go to two, and vice versa for not vice versa, and so and with two to three. Gotcha. So the, the the two is in Portland, Oregon. There's only one two and one three a year. So I'm I'm going to release three next year, or sorry, in 24. Um, two is coming out next year and there's only going to be one every time. So there's never going to be two or three strength training, two courses. And this one's in Portland, Oregon at Portland state university. The facility's great. One of the best food towns in the country. So that'll be really cool. And that's the, I think the 16th, to the 19th of May. So if someone goes to that, I'll probably the UFC Institute in in March, I'll probably offer like a 72 hour discount for whoever took that class there. If they want to actually take the uh the level two in portland
0: heck yeah let's go cool. yeah nice y'all so Dude, yeah i Thank like you that so much rich so let's do the outro so i am dr austin shane we got alex friedman and we got dr richard Ohm. and we are out